You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, church family. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael Bailey. I am one of the pastors at our Lexington Church, and I am pumped to get to be with you guys today. I want to begin by asking you a fairly simple question. What do you do when it feels like there is nothing you can do? What do you do when the circumstances you find yourself in seem to be beyond your ability to control? Maybe at your job, maybe your boss or a government official made a decision and it wound up costing you your job. You lost it. Maybe for you, it's a friend, someone that you care deeply for that you want to see come to know Jesus. And despite all of your sharing the gospel with them, despite how you've loved them well, they just seem to be completely and totally disinterested. Maybe it's somebody in your life group who is outright choosing sin over Jesus. And despite the fact that you have tried to address this with them, that you've shown them what God's word has to say about it, they are just continuing down the path that they're running. Parents, uh, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but I know, at least for me, this feels like, as a parent, this is my lived-in experience. That literally, things beyond my ability to control live in my house And one of the things that I'm readily coming to realize is that, man, when it comes to my kids deciding to follow Jesus or even just make wise decisions with their lives, this is wildly beyond my ability to control. So what do we do then? What do we do there? I find that we have what one writer calls a bias towards action, meaning that when we're faced with problems or difficult circumstances, our default is to want to spring into action. We we want to do something. We want to affect things. We want to improve our world. We want to solve our problems, which is a really wonderful trait to have. But my question is really, what do we do when our springing into action isn't enough or worse when it's not even an option? This is something that the scriptures are actually going to answer for us today. And I'd love for us to look together at the second chapter of Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 1, and we'll read a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit and unpack what Paul is saying here. But let's pick up in verse 1. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. To bring you up to speed a little bit on what's happening here, Paul began this letter to his apprentice Timothy by doing two things. First, by calling Timothy to lead the church, to stand firm in the truth. And secondly, reminding them that this gospel is the truth that they are built around. This good news that Jesus saves sinners like you and I is what we are founded on. And and that he wants to protect us from trying to drift away from it. And then the very first thing he instructs the church to do after all of this is to pray. Right out of the gate, he says, pray. Specifically, pray for all people. The first call of action as God's people in light of the gospel is to become a people of prayer. Now, Paul uses four different terms here to talk about prayer. And this is really one of those moments where you can tell that Paul is a preacher because he's basically just saying the same thing over and over again for effect. But the words that he uses are actually, they're they're pretty meaningful. He calls them supplications. He says, make supplications, which is not really a word that we use all that often anymore, but it basically means to ask or to seek or perhaps more accurately to beg for something that is needed. 
Then he says prayers, which has this dual meaning of an exchange of wishes and also pursuing communion and relationship with God. He says, make intercessions, which is like a petition that you would make to a king or to a government official. The Greek word here basically means to come to the table for a specific purpose. And thanksgivings, which obviously is just gratitude. And so he's essentially saying, I want you to be a people who beg God, who seek God, who ask God for things. And oh yes, while you're at it, a people who thank God too. The foundation he's laying is that God's people are meant to be a praying people. It's, a, it's basically a benchmark of who we are as Christians. We are a people who seek the Lord, who petition him, who run to him, who aren't afraid to ask him for what we want or what we need. A people who live in deep communion with God and who go to God, especially in times of trouble. And we don't just do this for ourselves, but who does the text say we do this for? For all people, for me, for you, for everyone. Notice specifically the example that he uses to clarify what he means when he says all people. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions. It's important here to take our 21st century American lenses off for just a moment and remember who he's writing this letter to. The Ephesian church is a small group of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus who are outcasts in the city that they live in. Many of the Gentiles around them hated them. Ephesus was something of an epicenter uh, for the worship of the false goddess Artemis. Excuse me. In fact, when the gospel first reached the city, a riot broke out from the adherents of this cult in opposition to the message that these Christians were proclaiming. But the Jewish community around them also hated them because many of them professed that this Jesus who was killed by the Jews was the long-awaited Messiah. And so essentially what you have is this little group of Christians have enemies on both sides. You couple that with the fact that it's most likely that Nero was the emperor of Rome at this time period. And if you know anything about history at all, you know that Nero, he really wasn't that nice to Christians. He blamed Christians for a fire that burnt down a bunch of Rome that led to widespread persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And it was likely that he's the very same emperor that had Paul executed. Essentially, this is Paul's way of saying, I'm talking about these people. And if I'm talking about these people, who am I not talking about? If I'm calling you to pray for these people who would be your enemies, who am I not calling you to pray for? I want you to pray for the people you're close with. I want you to pray for the people you're not close with, for the people who are on your side and the people who are not on your side, to pray for your friends, to pray for your enemies, to pray for your family, to pray, 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 pray. Which, if you think about it, it really is an incredibly beautiful instruction. It's incredibly beautiful, but it's also an incredibly audacious instruction to give. And the question I think it begs for us is why? Why would this be the first thing that Paul tells them to do? Out of all the possible things that he could have told them to go and do, to go share their faith, to go preach, to go serve, why does he choose to say, pray first? And I think the answer is actually fairly simple. Because for Paul, as well as for Jesus and the other writers of scripture, Prayer is a means for affecting change. Or to say it a different way, prayer gives us access. Prayer gives us access to something greater than what is just in front of us. Access to the one who is in control when we feel out of control. Access to the one who can not only meet our needs, but can actually do something about what we sense needs to be done in our lives and in the world at large. Access to the one who can do the things that we can't do. 
You might consider this a silly example, but I actually think it fits the bill pretty well on what Paul is saying here. Have you ever been in a situation, a situation where you are talking to an employee of a store or a business and something has been done wrong and you are asking them to make it right? Maybe they've charged you more than you were supposed to be charged or they didn't deliver what they were supposed to deliver and the person you're speaking with just won't do anything about it. Have you ever been in a spot like that? Despite the fact that you have all the proof to show that they are wrong and this thing needs to be make, made right, they just look at you and say, sir, I'm very sorry, but there's nothing I can do about it. What do you do? In that moment, what do you do? If you're anything like me, what you do is you say, okay, well, Steve, I'm going to need to speak to somebody who can do something about it, right? I need to see, speak to your boss. Let me talk to the manager. And I know that illustration runs the risk of making it sound like God wants his church to be a bunch, a bunch of uh, quote-unquote Karens, right? Which, if you don't know that reference, go Google it and absolutely enjoy. But if you read Luke 18, that's kind of how Jesus makes it sound like we are to pray. And Paul is implying here that prayer is essentially the ultimate opportunity to speak to the boss or to talk to the manager. In fact, it's probably even better than that. Jesus says that when we come to God in prayer, what we're really doing is we're coming to our heavenly father. And one of the best things about being a child is knowing that no matter what it is, daddy can fix it. When I scrape my knee or when the kid on the playground is picking on me, I know that all I gotta do is call on dad and this is gonna get handled. The point is, is that when things are not happening as they should, prayer is the access to the one who can do something about it. And this is what Paul is inviting us into. Look back again at verse two. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions, pray for them, so what? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Remember, this is a persecuted minority. They have no power, no cultural influence or respect to speak of. This is not 21st century democratic America. They have no rights to vote on their government officials. They have no say or influence regarding how they ought to be treated. There is literally nothing they can do to prevent Rome or anyone else from attempting to stamp out their little Jesus movement. There is nothing they can do to ensure peace for themselves or their loved ones. In most societies, when this is the case, where people are being oppressed and persecuted without any semblance of hope. Rebellion and revolt become the only plausible responses for positive change. But what the scriptures are saying here, what they imply here is that this is not the case for believers. This is not the case for this church. They have access to something greater that can actually influence all of those worldly positions of authority. There's a song in the musical Hamilton which, uh, in which Aaron, the Aaron Burr character sings, I want to be, I've got to be in the room where it happens, in the room where it happens. And it's essentially his cry to be involved. He wants to be a part of the shaping of the nation and the decisions that are getting made. He doesn't wanna be left out. He wants to have influence into what is actually happening. And what 1 Timothy implies here is that this is actually what prayer does. It gives us access through the spirit of God to every meeting room in the world, into spaces that you and I will never be invited into with the potential to directly affect them. Essentially, prayer can change things. Prayer does change things. Now, 
I know that someone is certainly going to ask, yeah, but Bailey, how does all that work exactly with God's sovereignty? Like, if he's sovereign, does it really matter if we pray? Or if he's sovereign, do our prayers really do much of anything? And the answer to both of those questions, according to the Bible, is yes, absolutely. God is sovereign, and that means that your prayers really do matter and that your prayers really do do something. Because according to the Bible, God in his divine wisdom has sovereignly chosen to work through the prayers of his people. This is his sovereignly appointed means. Yes, God could do anything that he wants, far more than we could imagine at the snap of his fingers, but he has chosen to invite you and I into the process. He is sovereign over both the ends and the means. And he has determined that prayer is going to be the vehicle that moves the arms that hold the world. As one Christian thinker commented, he said, we are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It's drawing into communion with him and there taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of his world. Or as Blaise Pascal says later, that in prayer, God has given us the dignity of being causes. Prayer is much more than asking God for particular outcomes. It is joining God in the directing of his world. And truthfully, that's kind of scary when you think about it, right? Like if that's the way that God responds to prayer, you might say, hey, we ought to be careful what we pray for because God might just say yes. Now, to be fair, he's a good heavenly father. So he knows when to say yes and when to say no. But the point is, is that you and I, we have a role to play in this. What do we do when it seems like there's nothing we can do? We pray and God responds. We pray and God responds. So uh, a couple of years ago, our Lexington church was just getting going and Brandon, one of the other pastors and I, we were looking over our budget and we had one of those, uh, what do you call them? oh crap moments, maybe you're familiar. We were, we were looking things over and it became really clear that if something didn't change and didn't change fast, our little church was not going to exist in a year. Basically, we needed to be bringing in about $4,000 per month more than we currently were. And the truth of the matter is, is we didn't know what to do and we didn't know where that was gonna come from. And so we just prayed. We got together and we prayed. Two days later, we were hanging out at Brandon's house, getting ready for a Midtown class. And Brandon, out of the blue, gets a phone call from a member. And the member just says, you know, I realized that I needed to start contributing to the work that God was doing around here. So I am gonna give uh, $4,000 a month from here on out. I kid you not. If I'm lying, I'm flying. What do, we, what do we do when it seems like there's nothing we can do? When the situations before us seem audacious and insurmountable and unassailable, we pray. We pray and God responds. Now, look, I know, I know that there has been a trend recently in the public sphere after national tragedies like the school shootings that we've seen and natural disasters where people will tweet or say, and usually this is directed at governmental leaders or, or Christian leaders, about how, how about instead of offering prayers, you actually get out and do something. We hear this all the time. 
And certainly some of that is warranted. Like when God has put people in positions to take decisive action and they don't, that is a misuse of the position God has given to them. But let's not be deceived. Prayer is action. In fact, in many cases, prayer is the best and only action that can be taken. And for what it's worth, the Bible is not arguing for prayer in lieu of action, but prayer that moves us to action. Because prayer, when it's rightly done, moves us further into action because it moves us closer into contact with the heart of God and his desires for the world. In fact, I would go as far as to say as the reason why many of us don't act much is because we don't pray much. And my question for us would be, what if we were to channel all of that? What if we were to channel all of our angst, all of our frustration, all of our anxieties and our worries, all of our desire for the healing and hope and good of the world? What if we were to channel all of those things into the heart of God through prayer? What would happen? What would change about our world? What would change about us? What would change about our families and our friends? I believe what we would find is that the word is the words of German theologian Karl Barth. I believe we would find these to be true where he says that to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And listen, this is a little bit of a side note to the sermon. It's not really what it's about, but can we just think about the implications of that for our current season? Can we think about the implications of this for what we're all currently walking through? So I've, I currently find myself asking questions like, how do I love my neighbors if I have to social distance from them? How do I shape and change the world if I'm supposed to isolate from it? This unexpected season ought to remind us that outward activity is not the only way we affect the world. There is another powerful and mysterious force available to us, and that is prayer. And I would hate for us to miss the one-to-one when Paul says to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Because while we are in a bit of a different situation than the Ephesians in that we actually do get to have some say, we get to vote on our leaders, in many respects, our authorities still make decisions that affect us at a significant distance from us. And every one of us has an opinion about how good or bad a job we think they are doing, especially during this current cultural moment. And can I just ask you a question? How much have you prayed for, the, for those who are making these decisions? How much have you prayed for those who are making these decisions in comparison to how much you have criticized them? I mean, how much have you legitimately sought the Lord on their behalf, gone to God and said, God, I know that you are in control of all things. Would you please give the men and the women who are making these decisions, will you please give them your wisdom here? If the Bible is to be believed here, it's telling us that you have an access that can affect those decisions. And do you even think about it that way? But zooming back out, the big reason why Paul encourages us to pray is because humanly speaking, the most unassailable and uncontrollable thing there is, is the human heart. The one thing that you and I have absolutely no power to change is someone else's heart. That is spiritual work. And so that means it requires God's spirit to do it. This is the dot that Paul connects in verse three. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved. So you see the connection there? Pray for all people. This is good because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? For all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Ultimately, the reason why prayer is the first thing we need to do is because there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. And he is the only hope for the world. Everyone needs him. And he gave himself as a ransom for all. And if anyone's heart is gonna be changed, if anyone is going to be saved, if anyone is gonna be awakened to this good news and move from death to life, it's gonna be if God is the one who instigates it. So there's a famous British pastor from the 1800s, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. One of the things he did when he was a pastor was he started a school where he would take young men and train them to be sent out as pastors throughout England. And one of the things he would do with his students is he would take them to a cemetery and he would say, all right, I'm gonna leave you here for an hour or so. And while I'm gone, what I want you to do is I want you to command uh, those who are in these graves to get up. I want you to command, I want you to command these people to get up out of their graves. And everyone would give each other these weird looks like, what, what is he talking about? And then he would leave and come back in an hour and basically say each time, hey guys, what's the problem here? I see all of you guys, but where, where are the people you were supposed to bring back? And his students would say something like, man, that, that's impossible. We can't raise the dead. And Spurgeon would reply, you know what? You're right. You can't raise the physically dead and neither can you raise those who are spiritually dead. Don't spend your ministry thinking you can just talk people up out of their graves. You need a movement of God to awaken the dead. And the point is, is that as followers of Jesus, everything that we want to see happen in the world, the lost found, the broken made whole, the wounded healed, the captive to sin freed, all of that begins with prayer. In fact, if you go back and look at the history of revivals, times when it seems that God just woke people up in mass to the truth of the gospel, no matter which ones we're talking about, whether it be the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival, or even Pentecost itself in Acts 2, they all began with men and women, women begging God to move, men and women inwardly groaning for God's kingdom to come to earth, men and women whose groaning became prayer and whose prayers became revival, which led to more prayer and new life all over the place. And of course, other things were involved, like living faithfully as disciples and sharing the gospel with those around us. And Paul is going to talk about those later on in 1 Timothy. But all of it, every time, began when God's people prayed. Prayer is the essential first step of action to the gospel advancing in our city. In fact, I will go as far to say, and I believe this is reflected in the teachings of Jesus, that the primary way over and above everything else, the primary way we join with God in bringing his kingdom to earth is through prayer. That's why it's literally the second line when Jesus teaches us how we ought to pray. And so hear me, if, if you want to see your friends and neighbors trust and follow Jesus, if you wanna get around the baptismal pool and hear people share their story about how they were lost, but Jesus found them, if you wanna see people brought from death to life, then we must learn to pray. We must learn to go to God and beg him for these things in our midst because Jesus saves people. We don't save people. But prayer gives us access to rooms and hearts that we wouldn't naturally have because when God's people pray, God listens and God 
responds. Now, I imagine, and maybe this assumes too much about us, but I imagine that most of us would say that we believe everything that I just said, that we believe that these things are true. But I would also imagine that if you're anything like me, that if we were to take an honest examination of our prayer life, or if someone were to take an honest examination of our prayer life, it might leave them wondering if we actually do. Like if we actually believe what we say. Imagine this. What if I reverse engineered the whole thing? What if I constructed what God was like and what he was able to do based solely on your prayer life? What would I find? What would I walk away believing him to be like? To ask it another way, if God said yes to everything that you prayed for this past week, what would be different? What would have changed? Spurgeon again put it really well when he said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. You see, prayer is a barometer of our faith and hope. It tells us who or what we are hoping for. It tells us where we are placing our greatest trust. It tells us what we actually believe matters or holds the most power in the world. And whether we care to admit it or not, our prayerfulness or our lack thereof, it reveals what we functionally believe about God. At the risk of painting with too broad of a brush, we don't pray because we don't believe that God is the real boss. We don't believe that he is our father who can make everything right. If prayer is missing from your life, it reveals your functional belief that there there are some rooms that God is not permitted in, but that there are some situations outside of his ability to influence and control, that there is a bully out there greater and more powerful than he is, or maybe more acutely, that there are some things that we can just handle better on our own. So what does your prayer life say about you? What does it say about you? And listen, I don't don't ask that to your shame, okay? I don't ask that to shame you. The cross has done away with our shame. In Christ, God is not embarrassed or offended by the lack of prayer in our lives. Rather, I ask this for your good because God has something for you in prayer. And there is something that God has for the world through your prayer. I found these words from Jim Cimbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, in New York City to be particularly encouraging and challenging for me. And I I just wanted to speak them over us today in in hopes that we would hear them and respond. He says that if we call upon the Lord, he has promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, to pour out his spirit among us. If we don't call upon the Lord, he has promised nothing, nothing at all. It's as simple as that. No matter what I preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend on our times of prayer. So listen, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what you're going through. 
I don't know what situations in your life feel uncontrollable or unbeatable. I don't entirely know what worry or anxiety keeps you up at night. I don't know what problems or issues or people in your life feel like you have essentially given up hope for, feel like they are just too far gone or too far out of reach. But what I do know is that God is the real boss. And better than that, he is your heavenly father and he is ready and willing to respond when you call. And so the only question for us left is, what will you do when you feel like there's nothing you can do?